0: Tracy, what are the big topics for you at, we're at the Milken Conference Mm. out in Beverly Hills. What would you say of like some of the big topics you've heard?
1: I think it's inflation. Right. I mean, I got to say, I was on a credit markets panel and it was called credit markets and inflation. So that kind of tells you everything you need to know.
0: No, that's obviously a big thing. I saw Ken Griffin. Mm-hmm. Of Citadel, he was talking a lot. He was actually kind of optimistic about it though. Like he wasn't that worried. He had a lot of criticisms about this administration and policy and all that. But of all the things, I was actually a little bit surprised. Like he didn't seem that concerned about inflation or as much as all the the media is talking about it. He thinks it'll moderate towards the end of the year or he thinks there's a chance anyway, uh, give the Fed some flexibility. So some interesting different views.
1: Well, Yeah. I mean, the thing that I've learned from the past year is that people feel very – people have strong opinions about inflation. Like It's a very emotional topic.
0: Sure. And it's really striking that we've had this incredible labor market recovery. We have sub-4% unemployment, and yet it appears that because inflation is high, that explains why consumer sentiment is so bad. Although I – I think there's more to it than just inflation.
1: Well, so this is the other thing that I think we've learned, which we've talked about before, but it feels like people care about More people care about inflation than people care about the unemployment rate. That's what it feels like to me because inflation affects everyone, whereas the unemployment rate is this kind of abstract thing. You can go up to people and say, oh, unemployment is just 4%, and they'll be like, well, I've been employed for the past 10 years, and all I know know is that the cost of living is going up.
0: Yeah, exactly right. So even during periods of high unemployment, most people hold on to their jobs over a given cycle, Mm. but everyone kind of feels rising prices and so there's sort of like this political asymmetry and you think about the fed and it has to balance the two but this is the first time we really see like this like it appears anyway that the high inflation is coming at a cost of consumer sentiment and so forth yeah i think that's right and of course it's highly politicized and people look at different policies and in particular, they look at you know the fed gets some of the blame and transitory shocks but there's a lot of i guess ire directed at the fiscal stimulus and in particular that last round that biden did um after he was elected and a bunch of people saying, oh look it's proved it's too much that was way over the, there was like there was one line and the other line was a little bit below and that was the output wait wait yeah. wait, wait, wait but then there's they spent trillions and it's too much
1: when are you going to say modern monetary theory
0: Okay, so (laughs) I'm I'm waiting. No, so okay, fine, fine. Let's just jump right in. So, one of the biggest advocates, not of fiscal stimulus or spending per se, but in getting us to rethink what we can do with fiscal policy, of Mm -hmm. course, is Stephanie Kelton, who is known as one of the foremost advocates of this way of thinking, modern monetary theory. And she is the author of the book The Deficit Myth. She is the co-host of the Best Ideas in Money podcast. And she's a professor at Stony Brook, and she's here with us at Milken. And so we are going to be talking about actually, you know what we're really going to be talking about? Is monetary, modern monetary theory to blame for this high inflation? Are yeah. you to blame for this high inflation, Stephanie?
1: Oh, he jumped right into yeah, it. I'm now. just
0: going to jump right in. Are you to blame? I, I think so. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs>
2: No, look, I um, I think that you you two probably more than anyone have, have well no no no, no. <laughs> i was just gonna say have done deeper dives into this question sure. over the course of the last what eighteen months two years or whatever you have been chasing this story in mm-hmm. a more sophisticated and persistent way than I think anybody out there and mm-hmm. you've. I think, really forced the conversation to shift. I mean, maybe I've helped shift the conversation on some fronts, but on the inflation front, I really think you've helped to focus attention on issues of pandemic-related supply chain and bottlenecks. Nobody's done more to, to change
1: the conversation around those things. So, oh, Thank um, you. This is going to be a double-edged sword for us, I think, if people start. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, look, I mean, so we, we have that.
2: We, we've been paying a lot of attention to mm-hmm. the drivers of inflation and thinking about inflation in ways that we didn't before. And frankly, we haven't really had to think about inflation for so many decades to the extent that we talked about inflation. It was, how do we get it up?
0: I appreciate that by the way. But to you know, the you know, the sort of it feels like there is sort of this revenge a little bit of the sort of the old school, the new Keynesian economists. And they're like, look, here's this line that's potential GDP, here's this other line that's actual GDP. There was a gap between them. Biden spent too much money that was more than one line subtracted by the other line. Our models work. It showed inflation. So what is that a vindication of that style of thinking, like this sort of like vulgar output gap thinking?
2: No, of course not. I mean, you know, being potentially getting the inflation stuff right, but for the wrong reasons, is mm-hmm. not vindication. Okay, so I again, we go back to what a, what is a more sophisticated way to think about why we ended up with the high inflation we ended up with. And, of course, it's not just here in the U.S., right. but it's around the world. And you look at Europe, and mm. they're just right on our heels at 7.5% or so. So we know that the countries like China, countries like the U.K. also are at 40-year highs when it comes to inflation. So it's it's a bit uh, simplistic, and I think wrong, frankly, to to look at things like the output gap and say mm. this is all down to pouring too much fire on an economy that didn't need that much fiscal support.
1: Can you break it down for us a little bit more? How much of the current inflation or price increases do you think are due to demand versus supply issues and energy prices and things like that? Super hard, super hard to
2: know the answer to that. Tracy, we were talking about that this morning on a panel that I was on with current CBO director, a former CBO director and Jason Furman. We had exactly these kinds of conversations. I don't think anybody on the panel feels Really comfortable, uh, dissecting at that. Uh, at that level, you know, Mm -hmm. half, a third, whatever. Um, But we do know, and we have differences of opinion, to be sure, right? Jason thinks that more of the inflation is a result of the excessive uh, fiscal support. Mm -hmm. And I think I put myself on the other side, which is that um, most of what we're still dealing with is, you know, pandemic related and energy. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's, you know, exactly where to put the numbers. I don't know. But um, when it comes to, you know, where to lay the bulk of the blame. Mm-hmm. I still come down on the side of, you know, pandemic and energy and now food, Ukraine. Yeah.
0: Right. It, you know, it feels to me, and again, I we're, you're, the, you're the expert here, but, you know, it's hard to, to me, it's hard to tell a story that, say, oil prices, which we know are a huge driver of all-in inflation, headline inflation, have something to do with fiscal spending.
2: Yeah. Right. I mean, you could in reverse though, right? When the pandemic first hit and largely things were shut down, oil prices did come significantly down. So there was some kind of a relationship between what right. was happening in the economy and that sort of thing. But yeah, you're you're right with respect to stimulus and and the fiscal support. Mm-hmm. Yes, we got a faster recovery, thank God. Uh, We got vaccines faster than a lot of people ever imagined. I remember when early on we were hearing, you know, Dr. Fauci say maybe four, maybe five years. I mean, thank goodness that happened much more quickly. And so the bounce back happened sooner and the strength of demand. So some of that is at play as well.
1: So one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is underinvestment in energy production and infrastructure. And this is something that the Biden administration has been very vocal about as well. And in fact, Biden has suggested a number of times that the solution to high prices is more spending, more investment to solve some of these bottleneck issues. And I wonder how that fits into MMT in the sense that my understanding is in MMT, the constraint on spending is inflation. And now we have CPI at 8.5%. And we have people who are also saying, well, the solution to the inflation is more spending. How do you reconcile those two things?
2: Well... Well Yeah, it's a a good question. So if you think about it the way I think that President Biden does, which is we need more capacity with respect to the labor force. We need to bring more, especially women, back into the labor force. And so he will, in a sense, justify investments in universal pre-K and child care and this sort of thing so that you can get especially women to return to the labor force to maybe ease some of the um, difficulties that employers have been having uh, hiring workers with Uh, computer chips, you know, he's talking about the importance of reshoring some capacity with semiconductor manufacturing and building resiliency and all of that stuff. Now, you're rightly raising this question about how do you do that in a supply constrained Mm -hmm. environment, you know, if they want to do all of this infrastructure, and we've heard talk about, you know, climate and the rest of it, you want electric school buses, you want to electrify the grid, you want solar panels and EV charging stations all over the country. Well, the question is, you know, who's going to put those up? Who's going to manufacture? Do you have firms that can meet those orders in a timely manner? Do you have the supply capacity? And to the extent that you don't, you're going to have backlogs. You're going to have to wait to roll that out. So it isn't going to relieve a lot of inflationary pressure in the short term. And I think he keeps reminding mm. us that these are sort of mostly medium and longer term investments, but maybe childcare helps a bit.
1: So this is sort of the the emphasis on the real resource constraint within MMT, which I will, you know, credit to MMT. I, I think that real resource focus has been borne out by the past couple of years. But I, I guess my question is, does MMT have a solution to that? Like, what is the policy recommendation in this kind of situation? Well, it depends what you want to accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. If,
2: you, if you're if you thinking about the kinds of things that worry me the most in some respects, which is the climate crisis that we're facing— then I think what you need to do is sit down and draft a, a program. And it's going to be a long-term program. It's going to be a 10-year or a 15-year or whatever program. But you've got to start thinking about how you're going to resource the kinds of investments that are needed to reduce CO2 emissions over a longer period of time. And that means investments in energy and investments in housing and transportation and agriculture. It's a big program. And so when you say, you know, how does MMT think about the capacity constraints, mm-hmm. in in part it's addressing a housing shortage. It's addressing you gotta build more housing, to mm-hmm. deal with a housing shortage. You have to deal with the grid. If you're going to electrify, you've got to make those investments. And, you know, you're not going to get it all perfect. You're going to try to map this out and and do it in a way that takes advantage of capacity where it exists, mm-hmm. that build capacity builds capacity where it doesn't, that frees up capacity in the economy for other uses if something is deemed a priority and you don't have the capacity To make the investments you want to make, you may well have to elbow out some of the private sector's current use of resources to free them up for something that's deemed a higher priority, like climate.
3: As a leading
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the way we're actually in this country attempting to deal with inflation is through rate hikes and the Federal Reserve. And there's all you know, people are like, well, what is the Federal Reserve? How is that supposed to fix supply chain bottlenecks? And everyone knows it can't, and etc. And most people seem to also. Have this view. It's like even the advocates of monetary tightening—it's a blunt tool. It's not the the most amazing thing, but okay, that's what we're going to do. But at least it is counter cyclical. When you look at politicians, they're proposing things like gas rebates or cutting the gas tax, which is a kind of arguably putting more trying to juice demand even right. further. Yep. It's not. I don't find like that very encouraging. And yep. so, like one of the good things I think about the MMT view of thinking is I consider it to be democratic. And not outsource, not outsource demand management to the to the Fed. But on the other hand, I look at what politicians their response, and I don't exactly feel encouraged by how they're thinking about dealing with a period of high inflation. And so, should that give people pause about M- the MMT political economy, such that when we hit high inflation, in many cases, the first instinct of politicians is to even juice spending or to spend more or
2: well okay so you you raise this um the gas tax and that's a pretty modest i mean we're talking about a few pennies really it's like tens you know i don't think this is going to lead to a big burst of inflationary pressure and of course alongside that what at least democrats are also talking about are you know trying to move another package through where president biden is explicitly um referring to this as a package that would be deficit reducing and therefore helping to bring down inflation so you are actually hearing no now i may not agree with that okay but you are hearing politicians say we ought to pass this legislation because it will actually help us to deal with inflation so you know you can say i don't trust them to do it but the Mm -hmm. truth is they are actually trying to
1: do exactly that but just to broaden it out a bit this has been one of the classic critiques of MMT, which is that, okay, you, you can change the narrative and make it so that people don't think that, you know, the budget in and of itself is the constraint on fiscal spending. But then you still have the problem of politicians having to agree on whatever the policy is that, that we're going to enact. And to be honest, that you know, recent history in Washington Mm -hmm. has not been conducive to consensus. You still have to build that consensus, even if you say, well, the budget is not unlimited, but bigger than maybe we think. And so I don't know if anything, it feels like that issue is still lingering. Consensus is lacking in DC to sum it up.
2: Sure it is. But I don't I don't know that this is a recent recent years kind of Mm -hmm. a thing. I mean, this is this is the name of the game. You know, if the votes are there, the legislation passes. And if the votes aren't there, the legislation doesn't pass. Mm -hmm. And so MMT doesn't solve the political gridlock and that sort of a thing. What it does do, though, Tracy, I think is it. Re, as you said, it recenters the debate. Mm-hmm. So instead of, you know, approaching something and saying, all right, we want to do a trillion dollars of infrastructure investment and we know we have to pay for it. We're in the old framework, right? We know we have to pay for it. So we're going to couple the proposed spending with a whole slew of tax increases mm-hmm. to generate revenue. So we can go to the Congressional Budget Office and say, look at our legislation, give it a score, tell us if we did a good job keeping it all deficit neutral. And it turns out, and we've seen this with Build Back Better, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to get the votes when you have to convince your colleagues Mm -hmm. in the House and the Senate, not just to vote for your spending priorities, but Mm -hmm. also to vote for the increase in taxes that you think are necessary to keep it all deficit neutral. And what MMT does is say, you know, sometimes you don't have to offset Spending, maybe offset half of it. Maybe you don't need to offset any of it, you Mm -hmm. know? And so you can then maybe have an easier time Mm -hmm. gathering the votes to make investments because you only have to win one fight instead of win that other fight as well.
0: I'm a little bit confused still about the role of taxes in uh, inflation management because I, one thing that you hear is like, well, this would be a really good time to raise taxes on the rich. That's a politically uh, popular thing. Maybe it uh, marginally diminishes their spending power. That create eases some strains on the economy. Maybe not just the rich. Maybe the upper middle class as well. What is is there a role for taxation in inflation management? And how do you think of it? Because I I feel like a little bit confused on this topic.
2: Okay. Well, taxes function to remove purchasing power from somebody's hands, right? Every dollar that's taxed away from you is a dollar you don't have and, excuse me, can't turn around and chase after some good or service right. in the economy. So taxes function to diminish one's purchasing power. Um, but there are other ways to to do that as well. So the role of taxes in MMT first, there's an origin story, right? There's an if you wanted to start up a a currency from scratch, Mm -hmm. taxes play an important role. And we saw that with the euro, the euro is a currency that didn't exist prior to January of 1999. And then because the government said, okay, after this date, we're going to start spending only in this currency, and we're going to require taxes be paid in this currency well, lo and behold, you switch over the monetary system. And now you have the euro. So You know, creating a demand for a currency uh, is one role of taxes. Another role is, you know, inflation. If you simply spent the currency and never taxed any of it back again, then you would, you know, put too much purchasing power into people's hands, and the result would inevitably be inflation. So one thing that taxes do is allow the government to both spend its currency into the economy, but also recover a portion of it as they tax some of it back.
0: But can tax policy be used counter-cyclically? And is, is, is there a role for it's like, hey, inflation is high, now is a good time to raise taxes? Well, the
2: Democrats are trying to do that now, actually. But tax, taxes are already countercyclical, right? Tax revenues increase automatically sure. as the economy grows, and they drop off uh, in a recovery. In a, I'm sorry, in a recession. And so, I guess you're asking about discretionary, right? Yeah. The discretionary use uh, in order to battle inflation. It's been proposed in the past. You know, the Federal Reserve building is named after Mariner Eccles. And if you go back and you listen to the kinds of things Eccles was saying when talking about how to bring down inflation after the war, or during and after the war, Eccles was saying we should use taxes to do this. So it's not a new idea. It's not an MMT proposal, per se. Um, Could it work? Could it function to reduce inflationary pressures? Yes. Is it practical to adjust taxes in real time to try to battle Mm ex post inflation, like after it happens? And the answer is probably no. Um, Maybe you can get the votes Mm -hmm. to raise taxes when inflation is high, and it may help to reduce inflationary pressures. But it's certainly not the frontline
1: policy prescription for reducing inflation in MMT. Basic question here, what is the right way or the ideal way to reduce ex post inflation?
2: All right. So, this is the way I always have tried to say this. There is, in my mind anyway, no one size fits all policy response to inflation. You have to look under the hood. If I were to walk down into my basement and find it flooded with water, I know I have a problem on my hands, but I don't know why. I don't know if a kid left a sink running, if a toilet overflowed, if the dishwasher's leaking, if a pipe burst. Mm -hmm. Before I know what to do, I have to figure out where the source of the water is coming from, what's causing the problem. And that's how I think about inflation. If it's, and we were talking earlier about energy right is higher or higher interest rates the right response the right policy response to an inflation that's being driven largely by oil prices mm-hmm. and i think the answer is no so i really think where we're ultimately headed i think i guess i hope is to a more granular tailored policy response more sophisticated response to the way that we approach you know this combating is- inflation
0: this is where we need my idea of a Fed that sets the speed limit of cars, and in these days, lower the speed limit rather than raising interest rates. Lower the speed limit to get better gas mileage.
2: You know, the the economists at the Center for Economic and Policy Research just okay. came out with a, a kind of six things you could do to reduce inflationary yeah. pressures today. That's one of the six ideas they put forward: a shorter work week right um oh, we'll yeah. work from shorter home work home.
1: week sounds fine yeah work from Keep home a, sounds good
0: tra- every tracy's ears always perk up at work yeah from home, yeah she's so yeah. like a big
1: if mmt says everyone should work from home that's we've got that's, you that's, <laughs> that's, yeah <laughs> we've got you. that's okay with me um but actually actually on that point can we talk about the job guarantee portion of mmt because i mentioned this in the intro but it feels to me that given everything we've experienced now that inflation seems to be a more salient issue for people than unemployment. And you know maybe if unemployment was at 10% or God forbid 20% or something crazy like that, more people w- more people would obviously care. but a greater proportion of those not directly affected would care. But it feels like everyone has a stake in inflation. Everyone is impacted by the cost of living. So how does MMT overcome that discrepancy? Yeah. How do you get people to care about the job guarantee portion of, of the theory?
2: Well, I guess, you know, one way to think about it is what if we had a federal job guarantee in place before the pandemic broke? Mm -hmm. And instead of, you know, 22 million people lost their jobs in the first two months of the pandemic or whatever, and Congress sort of panicked because we didn't have kind of institutions in place to absorb and deal in a more focused way with the, you know, the unemployment and the, you know, economic fallout. So suppose we had a federal job guarantee in place, Mm. then there would have been, you know, less, I think, panic and pulling out the bazooka, the money bazooka, and just spraying it across the economy and saying, we got to blow a bunch of money into people's hands, because we don't know what else to do. You could have Employed people directly, mm. and it would have been targeted as opposed to this much more, right. you know, untargeted. You would have response. had the infrastructure
1: already you in would place. Would have had it in
2: place, yeah. and the money would have gone right to where it was needed. You wouldn't necessarily have had to send large checks to almost everybody, mm. uh, and maybe to the extent that doing those kinds of things helped to fuel some of the inflationary pressures that, that we're dealing with today, people could be persuaded by saying, "Look, we don't want to end up there again." Mm.
0: I like the bazooka. I thought it was great. It just sprayed all that money around. And we went from what was going to be one of the worst downturns ever to the fastest recovery in history. Yeah,
2: actually, I mean, there's no question, right? (laughs) It is true, right, that we did have the fastest economic recovery in recorded history. So you got to give some credit to the policy response this time, especially as compared to 2008,
0: 2009. I've seen uh, Steven Mnuchin around the conference we're at, and I keep trying to, I I haven't (laughs) gotten close enough to invite him on uh, Odd Lots and we can talk about how great that was but in all but in all seriousness you know looking back setting aside the idea of like it would have been nice if there was uh, infrastructure in place looking back at the various rounds and Israel, really there was like the was it, the cares act right yeah. and the american and then biden's arp right
2: well there was the cares act and in march the- of 2020 yeah. and then there was the 900 billion um, consolidated spending right. bill in December right. of so 2020, that, and then $1.9 in March of 2021. So $5 trillion yeah. in 12 months.
0: So looking back at those three big bills, just from what we know now and where we are, in your view, are there lessons to be learned about how they might have been structured differently? So-
2: in in a, in a perfect world, yeah. right, you would run legislation through a sort of rigorous scoring process, if you want to call it a scoring process, instead of asking CBO, tell us the budgetary impacts of what we're about to do. You want to have somebody on the outlook for inflation risk, and you want to have somebody taking a look at what it is you're proposing to spend and looking to mitigate inflation risk ahead of time. That's the big advantage, I think, of MMT, is that when it comes to inflation, the goal is to preempt it, not to chase it on the back end after you've caused the problem, but to avoid inflationary problems, partly through a job guarantee, but partly through changing the way that you evaluate legislation prior to voting. Now, having said that, You know, I said we're in a perfect world and in a perfect world, you'd also have perfect information. Mm -hmm. So you would be able to see the Delta variant coming and you would be able to see the Omicron variant coming. So when I think about it, if you had been able to tell lawmakers, say, let's say you take Larry's story to them and you say the line goes here and the other line is here Mm -hmm. and this is going to be too much. But also you should know a Delta wave is coming and an Omicron wave is coming. Would lawmakers have wanted to err on the side? Remember everybody originally said it's better to do too much than too little. Yeah. So maybe if you had perfect information about what was coming, lawmakers might have still preferred to to take the risk of yeah. going too right. big. We just don't know.
1: And this was also the criticism of 2008, 2009 was that we we didn't actually do enough. But So one other thing that people are talking about quite a lot right now is the idea of – the dollar and its place in the global financial system and America's enjoyment of reserve currency status. And this has also been one of the sort of tangential criticisms of MMT, which is that it might only work for a country like the U.S. that enjoys that reserve currency status. Maybe it's not so well suited to emerging markets. And I know you have strong opinions on this, but I'm just curious, how are you thinking about that Aspect of it at the moment. And, and what's your response to people who say, well, inflation, the inflation that we're experiencing and, you know, it just proves that um, the, the dollar is on its way down or that America's reserve currency status is somehow in danger.
2: Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm looking at the dollar versus the euro versus (laughs) the euro. This is pretty hard to make that argument right now. But it's not – I don't think, Tracy, that I have strong opinions about EM. Mm -hmm. I think that for a lot of EM uh, countries – they don't enjoy the kind of capacity, you know, to spend that a country like the US or Japan or the UK or Australia or Canada does and It's, of course, not just the US, because you look at what even countries across Europe this time, as compared to last time, this time, European countries, even those that are on the euro enjoyed basically the full backstopping of the ECB. Mm. It was almost as if the ECB restored monetary sovereignty to all of these these countries and just basically said we have your back we're not going to let yields blow out go and spend what you need to spend deal with the pandemic and the economic fallout so it's not just the US that can do these things yeah. every european country could basically spend whatever was necessary because they enjoyed the backstopping of the ECB the UK did a lot of fiscal yeah. you know australia and and so um but emerging markets are definitely different you got a lot of dollar denominated debt you're dependent on energy and food and other, you know, critical items uh, to import. You're not necessarily going to be able to get those things and you're in a different spot.
1: Right. This was Fidel Kaboob's argument yeah. when yeah. he came on here, which is that actually MMT, when applied to emerging markets, is about building up that independence, that fiscal independence. And capacity. Yeah.
0: You know, I'm, I, you know, when I think about like the last 10 years or 2009 to 2020, roughly, obviously, Incredible ascendant MMT was around for long before then, but the conditions were very right for that for the message that we are underutilizing our fiscal capacity, and we had elevated uh, employment, we un- elevated unemployment. We know uh, ex post facto that. Uh, the unemployment rate could drop for far, much further than economists thought. And it's like, oh, this is full employment. Then it just kept going lower. So like the conditions were very good in the post-great financial crisis for MMT to have like a big impact and for this message that we are underutilizing these policy tools that we have available. I think like regardless of why we have inflation or et cetera, it feels like now it's going to be like MMT on hard mode. And it's going to be uh, these questions about, like, how do you build port capacity? How do you build sustainable energy capacity? How do we build electrical grid capacity? These are like, these are, it feels like these are going to be the really tough questions of the next decade. And I'm really curious, like, from your perspective, how are you aiming to have MMT thinking inform these conversations?
2: Well, at least that's the proper question. So we're now we've shifted the debate onto this new terrain. And you hear, you know, Secretary Yellen going and giving speeches before the um, World Bank just recently and saying, you know, what, what the administration's basic macro approach is modern supply side economics. And, and sh- the, sh- the shift that she's talking about there is exactly what you're talking about, building capacity and dealing with supply side, right, Reshoring and building resilience and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I think MMT can play a role in that. And, um, you know, we're not quite there in the sense that for, for Janet Yellen and the way she's talking about it, you still have that. Adherence to the idea that everything needs to be deficit neutral, sure. and that keeping a deficit neutral is tantamount to keeping it inflation in neutral, which it is not. Um, but at least we're starting to focus on things like how do we make the investments in ports and um, childcare and all the rest of it, you know, semiconductors and so forth. How do we get there? How do we get there? Well, we do it. You have to make. You have to spend the money. There's no. There's no like secret. You know, recipe here, you just simply have to spend the money. So, how do you continue to make the kinds of investments that are necessary in an economy that is supply constrained? How long will we be supply constrained? You know, the the word recession is everywhere at this conference. Everyone is talking about whether the Fed is going to successfully orchestrate a soft landing. And if they don't, a hard landing means a deeper recession, which automatically means you're going to free up capacity, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll just come back to climate because for me, that is the number one issue. It's not going anywhere, which means I don't think that MMT has lost its place in the debate. I think that, you know, the weather-related, tornadoes, hurricanes, fires, floods, all the rest of it, that stuff is only going to intensify in the years ahead. And we have to spend and we have to make the investments. And so MMT gives us, I think, the confidence to know that there is a path to get there.
0: One thing that uh, just really struck me, I mean, obviously, there are these sort of like big macro factors driving um – the inflation we're seeing but we also like have had a lot of droughts and i like the yeah. u.s corn planting season right now is dismal and that's a problem and there's you know droughts in brazil that have affected or so, like, india and, and, it's and wheat in crops and, and the and, heat yeah. and so thinking about like the connection between climate and weather and the inflation and in food that we're thinking right now is pretty real
1: So, I, I mean, just on this note of, of how MMT sort of recaptures the narrative, uh, again, one of the critiques has been that the theory itself is complex and people tend to kind of see what they want to see inside of it. What, what do you say in response to that, to people who say that the theory is, is too complicated and has a tendency to sort of like change goals and aims over time?
2: I'm not sure I've
1: heard that critique oh, okay. as much. You know, I, I think... You must have heard that MMT is complex, right? And hard to for a lot of people to grasp. Because like the goalpost seems to change sometimes. No. Okay,
2: well, I've heard people make accusations about goalposts and so forth. But I think, I, I guess I'm used to hearing people say it's almost too obvious and too simple. Yes, uh, I, I've heard idea. that one too, yeah. just to be clear. So yeah. when it comes to the complexity, what, um, can you just help me by...
1: I guess it's the idea. So, for instance, take like a real example from from recent history. So uh, the the Sri Lankan central bank governor, I think he came out like one or two years ago. I can't remember exactly when and said, like, we're pursuing MMT. And he thinks he's doing MMT because it's more fiscal spending. But then a lot of other people who are more closely aligned with MMT, who are more involved with it, will come out and say, no, 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 this isn't MMT because he's not building up fiscal capacity and independence, he's not focused on increasing productive capacity or whatever. That's what I mean. It seems open to interpretation. I got
2: you. So, it's I agree with you. If your takeaway, if your if your thumbnail sketch of MMT is Um, don't borrow in a foreign currency and you can do whatever the hell you want, then (laughs) that's
1: not going to work. But you could see how that would be attractive to some emerging market politicians. Sure you could.
2: And I think, you know, I know only a little bit about the Sri Lankan uh, comments and the justification, the invocation of MMT there. And I think his... His belief was as long as the proportion of domestic debt mm-hmm. is higher than the proportion of external debt, yes. then you're somehow okay, which makes no sense whatsoever. You mm-hmm. still have a lot of external debt that has to be serviced, mm-hmm. and if you can't you know, export and earn foreign exchange to service debt, you're in a world of hurt. Either way. So but, there's no way for MMT to rescue you
1: there. But just to bring it back to the US, for instance, a lot of people, well, some people, I should be careful, some people will say that, well, we just experimented with MMT, we ramped up our fiscal spending at a time when we really needed it. And Some others will say, well, actually, you know, for instance, real MMT would have told you that we should have had the architecture in place before the 2020 pandemic happened in order to provide that kind of support to people or that, you know, the policy should have been slightly different. That's what I mean about the complexity. And I I think that's the aspect of it that might be difficult for people to sort of grasp.
2: Yeah, so I did a post um, that was, I think it was titled something like, it's too late for an MMT informed approach to budgeting. Right. And again, it was the pandemic, it was the panic, you know, and when everybody's in panic mode, yeah. then it just became, like I said, the whipping out of that money bazooka and trying to, to s- smatter, mm-hmm. you know, the, the economy with enough cash to support income to pull us out of the the pandemic and, and the recovery. Um, So it is true, though, that if you're doing, quote unquote, doing policy and you're doing it consistent with MMT principles, Mm. then you've transformed the federal budgeting process. You're evaluating legislation differently. We just didn't have time to do that. Mm.
3: As a leading real estate manager, principal asset management harnesses the power of a 360 degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management Actively Invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
0: Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal.
1: And Tracy Alloway.
0: And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast.
1: That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Fed. Raising interest rates seems to have some effect on the real on the economy, and I don't know like exactly what it is, but it seems to you know. certainly mortgage rates have shot up. That's going to make borrowing or affording a house at current prices at least more difficult. It seems to already be uh, slowing some things, perhaps in the housing market. What is in your view, like just from your perspective? What do we you know? Let's say we're getting the Fed is seems to be set on this like very aggressive series of hikes. Um, by the time this comes out, actually, we'll have had the May decision, but you know, more hikes likely on the way. If we, Given your assessment of the inflation, that it's not necessarily about demand and that it's global and that it's about energy and food largely, which it's a ha- bit harder to tell the demand story, what do you think is going to come out of uh, these hikes? What are they going to do to this kind of economy?
2: Uh, I guess it depends how big they are and how Quickly they come, and uh, you know I think that the the likelihood of a soft landing, you know I think I'm on the side of that's really difficult to pull off, hmm. and uh, y- you know you can slow things down. Housing is, of course, the probably sector that is the most sensitive to interest rates. and But, you know, you've done shows and I've listened to them where you're, you've you talked about the housing market and you say, listen, you, you put a house on the market and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you have 40 bids and half of them are all cash, which right. makes you go, yeah, okay, so interest rates are rising. So maybe a few of the people who would have borrowed and bid on that home are out, but maybe you still have 20 all cash buyers yeah. in the mix because they're not interest sensitive. So to the extent that you do see housing start to cool, then of course- Fewer people buying homes and furnishing them, maybe that takes some strain off of durable goods and sure. that sort of stuff. So I don't discount that interest rates have a channel, you know, but it's just very difficult to figure out and in Powell will remind us long and variable lags, right? So by the time inflation starts to come down, it, the the interest rate increases may not really have taken hold, and yet the fiscal tightening, which is already baked in, we have huge reduction in deficit right now. Um, that may do enough to you know help with the reduction in inflation.
0: One of the reasons it seems that the Fed is uh, you know uh, at, inclined to do an aggressive series of rate hikes is this idea of like, well, yes, a lot of the inflation is still transitory factors. Maybe it's still related to the pandemic and now, of course, the war or the new lockdowns in China, but it's too late and we're worried about the inflation expectations genie coming out of the bottle. And that if you just let inflation get too high for too long, regardless of the fact, regardless of why, our expectations become unanchored and then we have a decade of high inflation just because expectations. And I'm curious, like, do you sign any significant force to this idea of like the expectations channel?
2: I don't assign a big force. I mean, I I won't say that I discount it entirely, but the idea that there is this dominant channel through which interest rates work, which is through inflation expectations. You know, I'll put myself on the side of Philip Rudd, who I think wrote that paper that got a lot of attention. Was it the Richmond Fed?
0: I think Um, it was actually – the fed i think it's was it was like the, the main, fed main fed. Fed. yeah
2: i think it's the right. fed 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 <laughs> the fed uh, I, I think a lot of it is economists sort of hand waving because most of the old theories seem to have stopped working you know most people don't Put a lot of cred in the idea of a Nairu, or uh, maybe a Phillips curve, sort of fell out of favor when the data stopped working, and so people just sort of turned to this other way to explain inflation mm-hmm. and said, "Well, it's mostly expectations channel. This is what's the driver."
1: So, just on this on on this topic, there are some people who, in early 2020, or maybe mid 2020. I'm thinking specifically of Larry Summers. But, you know, Larry Summers came out and said, like, ah, oh, this is way too much. We're going to get massive inflation. And he's been doing victory laps um, around that thesis. And, you know, technically he didn't actually say we're going to have massive inflation. He said there's a one-third chance of having lots of inflation.
0: So but he was certainly one of the louder voices he, of concern.
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, people are giving him a lot of credit for, for seeing these price increases. Uh, what, what did he get right? In that scenario, or what did he see that other people maybe didn't?
2: Hmm. Well, inflation went up. Uh, (laughs) Right. You know, I mean, it it can be a case of right for the right reasons versus right for maybe the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that I heard Larry articulate um, back in, you know, January of 2021 or December. Uh, When the debate was really heating up over um, this $1.9 trillion COVID package, I'm not sure I heard him talk about, you know, housing and energy and food and, you know, Mm. uh, it was the sort of line goes this way and the other line goes that way. And the gap is such that we're pouring too much in. Um, So, you know, he I think that uh, I had a piece out in April of 2021 in The New York Times. It was a fairly long op ed. And it was all about inflation, and so it wasn't as if inflation wasn't also on my radar and and others. Um, but what I think we were thinking about it in in different ways. Mm.
1: So maybe just to sum it all up, you know, if you had a wish list right oh, yeah. now, what would be your biggest policy recommendation, or what would you like to see the most happen right now?
2: It, I mean, it has to be climate. I I don't see a bigger threat challenge before us than. Climate change mm-hmm. and it's going to touch our lives in ways that you know are unimaginable still for many. But I think the scientific community is telling us, and the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report is pretty scary stuff. And um, I think we're going to so, we're going to have to deal.
0: So, in a time in which we're already strained by high oil prices and high fossil fuel costs, and also labor constrained, it would appear, and other constraints, what does is- Climate, what does acting on climate look like from your perspective in a way that doesn't exacerbate inflation? Because uh, Isabel Schnabel, the Deutsche Bank, has talked about green inflation, et cetera. So well, what is I, that like? I was
1: going to ask if inflation is just you know what we have to accept and, and live with in exchange for healing the climate or fixing the climate change problem.
2: I would certainly hope mm-hmm. that if it came down to that, and that was the trade-off, that the answer would be unequivocally yes mm. that it is a small price mm. to pay for the sake of the <laughs> survival of humanity that it seems like a worthwhile trade off
0: but voters are voters and we know there's people are really unhappy about the existing inflation and if you want to keep a durable political coalition alive in washington you have to win elections every 2 years and so how do you think about when you say you want to see something done on climate at a time when people are really upset about gasoline prices? How do you think about uh, making putting? Uh, you know, what's a policy framework uh, look like? That's what's also your, politically. Yeah.
2: Terrible? What's your energy bill going to look like when we don't deal with climate change? What is it going to look like when your house is burned down? And what is it going to look like? You know, have you ever seen people in an airport when their flights are canceled? Mm. Climate change is going to massively disrupt life. Uh, in so many ways right it is going to be an irritant it is going to be a hardship people are going to be feeling pain in ways they haven't even imagined in their lives in their pocketbooks as a result of climate so um, again i think you know the kind of inflation we're dealing with now is mild Hmm. in comparison to what lies ahead if we don't get our arms around this
0: stephanie kelton thank you so much for coming back on Lot.
1: thanks so much thanks stephanie that was really fun yeah
0: Obviously, I really enjoyed that conversation. You know, something I was thinking about just in general with with inflation um, more broadly mm-hmm. is things have really started to normalize in the United States from a pandemic perspective. There really are like very few restrictions on anything. Now, of course, there's still, you know, the awful war that's happening in Ukraine and there is the, uh, the you know, ongoing lockdowns that are happening in China. But to the extent that... Inflation is sort of pandemic related. Mm -hmm. I kind of think like now is the period where we're going to find out. Like, is it start to cool down as things normalize, whatever that means? Or is there some other force that continues to push it extremely high? I think there's like a pretty pivotal juncture
1: here. The the moment of truth.
0: Kind of. I think it is.
1: Well, uh, the other thing, and we've spoken about this before, but in retrospect, maybe transitory wasn't the right word to use to describe what was actually – pandemic related inflation right. or narrow inflation versus broad based inflation something like that and it does feel like by using that word the federal reserve basically put an expectation in that this yes. would be something that lasts 3 months over
0: by the end of 2021 right, right? Yeah. when
1: actually to your point it's only recently mm-hmm. that a lot of these pandemic related restrictions are starting to go away the other thing I would say, and this is sort of a big picture, theoretical, philosophical question, is I feel like a lot of this MMT debate boils down to relative versus absolute gains. And this kind of comes to the inflation point, right? It's easier to get people oh, yeah, yeah. riled up about cost of living than it is about employment. And on the other hand, a lot of it also comes down to short-termism versus yeah. long-termism. A lot of these policy recommendations absolutely make sense for big long-term problems like climate change, but sometimes it's hard to get people to think beyond like what are my bills going to look like for the next month.
0: Yeah, and I thought your question was like was was really astute on that matter about the sort of like disparate impact of employment versus inflation And everyone experiencing inflation, only some people at any given moment experiencing uh, unemployment. You know, the one other thing, and this is just my personal opinion, but, you know, the one other thing is so much of the MMT message Mm -hmm. has been... Co-opted and then claimed that uh, this is always <laughs> how we thought. It's like, oh, we always knew that real resources were the constraint. We always you know, we always knew X or Y. But I really feel like that's very relevant now. And yeah. Stephanie, of course, mentioned Janet Yellen and the sort of new supply side economics, progressive supply side economics. You have like liberal pundits like Ezra Klein talking about um, you know, the new supply side, but this idea of well, if the constraint is on the supply side, yeah. then let's build out the supply side is like this like core like MMT idea Then now v- a lot of people are talking about.
1: My most MMT leaning opinion or recognition this year is, and, and we've said this, I think we've written this, but the idea that any problem that can be solved with money Isn't actually a big or real problem. Yeah, like that. It's a very MMT thing to say, but I I think that's something that we've learned over the past couple years.
0: Yeah, if you can, if you can write a check to solve it, you're. It's not that big a deal. My most real MMT view. Actually I'm not gonna say, I'm gonna wait. It's too it's too hot for it's too hot for air, so I'll tell you after we hit record.
1: Wait, an MMT view that's too hot for air? Yeah, that can't say. Wow, okay. All right. Uh sorry, odd lots listeners. <laughs> um shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Stephanie Kelton at Stephanie Kelton. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.